0: Well, the ushers are passing out the, uh, the handout for today, and uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 again. The title of my message today is The First Mission of the Disciples. The First Mission of the Disciples. And uh, I couldn't think of any other title, because this is The First Mission of the Disciples. So here it is, Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. I want you to begin to turn there, and we're going to go through this text as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for the last number of months. We're going to pick it apart and see what we can grab hold of out of God's truth and take it and apply it to our lives. So we're in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. We're going to be looking at the first mission trip, if you will, of the disciples. Mark 6, verse 7. And Jesus called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And He said to them, Jesus, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you When you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out, the disciples did, and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jump back again to verse 7. It says, And Jesus called the twelve to Himself and began to send them out two by two. And He gave them power over unclean spirits. Now, those of you who have been following along in our study in Mark, you will notice that here we, here we have in verse 7 uh, the first time the disciples moved from onlookers to ministry participants. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that the disciples have moved from onlookers to ministry participants. Up until this point, they've been watching Jesus. They've been watching His ministry. They've been listening to His teaching. They've been looking at His miracles and witnessing His healings and the exercising of demons. But now Jesus sends them out. I think it's important to note uh, the experience with which Jesus sent them out. What was the situation of the disciples at the point that they moved out throughout Galilee and into Israel to do their mission? What had they seen? Well, on the one hand, they had watched Jesus experience success, right? They had seen Jesus preach and teach and heal, and exercise demons, perform miracles. They had seen crowds respond with awe and with wonder. They had seen success in Jesus' ministry. They had seen people of all social backgrounds and statuses coming to Him to be healed, expressing their faith in Him. But on the other hand, they had seen hardships in Jesus' ministry. They had seen times of difficulty and great trial in Jesus' ministry. They watched as Jesus was challenged by the Herodians, the Pharisees, the scribes, and other religious leaders. They sat back and watched as Jesus' own family were embarrassed by Him and fearful that His teaching and actions would alienate them From their community. The disciples had watched as Jesus' teaching was often rejected by some of the Jews. Most especially, last week, it was rejected by those of His own hometown of Nazareth. As we learned last week in Mark chapter 6, the early part. I bring all this up to, to show the success and to show the hardships and if you will, in a sense, the failures, the shortcomings of the ministry to demonstrate that when Jesus sent them out into Israel, He was not sending them out with a fairy tale perspective that gave them the impression that they would have unlimited success. He sent them out with a realistic perspective. One that understands that the kingdom power and message that they are bringing will be accepted by some and it will be rejected by others. Jesus let the disciples see weakness, suffering, and trial firsthand before He sent them out as His missionaries. I think that's significant. Um, I think it's significant that Jesus did not send them out after merely the success of his ministry. He waited and he paused long enough to let them see the trials of ministry, the difficult times. And I ask us the question, how do we train others for ministry? Um, uh, with what perspective do we send and do we equip people for ministry, both in the church and without, outside the church? Do we prepare people with the idea that their efforts will turn into automatic results? Would our people grow discouraged if they began ministry and didn't see results? Would our people grow discouraged if they began ministry and never saw results? You see, results, friends, um, fruit, conversion, changed lives... Um, these things are not contingent upon us. They're not contingent upon us. Jesus sent the disciples out and said, testify of Me. Represent Me. Be My ambassador. And what does an ambassador do? An ambassador goes to another land and represents the One who sent him. The ambassador is not responsible for them, whether they listen to the to the authority, whether they pay heed to the one who has sent the ambassador, it's merely the ambassador's job to say, this is the message of my master. This is the message of my president. This is the message of my authority. My ruler. And whether or not the recipients of that message choose to receive it and respond positively or choose to reject it and respond negatively. Uh, that is not to deter us from spreading that message, from proclaiming that message. I have a suspicion, folks, that, uh, that one of the factors, among many, but one of the factors um, that contributes to people burning out in ministry is when they, too, when they put too much onus on themselves to create results. When they put too much onus on themselves to create results. And when it doesn't happen, they begin to think there must be something wrong with them. When a Christian believes that he or she is responsible for the faith or the growth of another person, that Christian is not thinking biblically. Our role as Christ's ambassadors is to be like Christ. Nothing more and nothing less. We preach Christ to others and we live like Christ, but only the Spirit of God draws a soul to Christ. Only the Spirit of God changes lives. Only the Spirit of God draws a person to conversion, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you, um, you in ministry, you who have been witnessing to a coworker or a friend you parents who have children who are not yet saved or who are regressing in their faith guess what your job is to represent Jesus Christ period if your child uh, fails to exhibit faith or if your child fails to grow in their faith um, the onus is not on you your job is to represent Christ, to show your child Jesus Christ every day, to say this is the truth, this is the way, this is the life. But if your child chooses to reject that, or if your child strays away from that, I want to give you comfort in knowing that if you've, done, if you've represented Christ, you've done your part. You've done your part. When the, when the Lord uh, judges pastors or elders, when he judges teachers, he's not going to say, uh, Did you get results? He's going to say, Were you faithful to them? Did you faithfully represent me to the people? So that they then could respond to the Spirit of God. Do your part. The onus of results is not on your shoulders. The disciples now are preparing for their journey. And Jesus gives them some simple instructions about what to bring. Uh, They're about to embark on a very significant journey, one that might last for many months even. And this is what they were to bring. Take a look at verse 8. It says, Jesus commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Now, uh, my wife and I recently bought a, a set of, of luggage. Uh, it's similar to the set you've got up here on the screen behind you in just a moment. Um, interestingly enough, uh, we, we, the w- when we designated whose luggage was which, this is what we came up with. You know, it's it's kind of one of those things, you know. Guys, how many of you guys can relate to this? Ah, I see. I'm not the only one. Yeah, and in fact, actually, I need to cut my suitcase into thirds because she gets a third of that as well. I can I can rag on her a little bit now that she's at home, you know, with my sick child. What a nice husband, huh? You know, when we when we go on a vacation, I mean, it's just it's just chaos. You know, we could be going for a weekend, a weekend, and it will look like that when we get out of the car. I kid you not. Uh, we just we we just we overpack. We say we won't every time, but every time we get ready to go on a trip, whether it's a weekend trip or a two-week trip, it, 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 you know, two weeks actually is going to be about double that. Anyhow, folks, that is not this packing list, is it? That is not this packing list. This packing list says that, uh, let's see, Jesus says basically, travel light, boys. He says, take nothing but a staff. Let's go back to that text here on the the next slide. Take nothing but a staff, sandals, one tunic, no bag, no bread, no money. You're not going to need that. He says, trust me. Rely on me. I'm going to provide for you. Many are going to open their doors to you and feed you and provide you with a place to sleep. I think it's safe to say these instructions were were meant to instill in the disciples a sense of dependence upon Jesus Christ. I think... uh, and I think it's safe to say they probably had a little apprehension as they as they waved goodbye and thought, "Wow, all I got is the staff and my clothes and my sandals," and that's that would cause a little bit of apprehension in my mind. But take a look uh, for just a moment. We've got to uh, we've got to deal with a, a rabbit trail here. Every once in a while, we come across some of these things, and I need to address briefly uh, some seeming or apparent discrepancies between what we see in Mark and what we see in Matthew and Luke's account of this text. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at what Matthew says about this very same text. Matthew says, "...provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food." Um, Okay. On the surface, seems that we may have a discrepancy, but hold on. Let's make it even harder. Let's go to Luke chapter 9, verse 3. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. First glance, uh, this, this seems a little daunting, doesn't it? At first glance, this looks like, wow, how in the world do we possibly reconcile these differences? So this is the same story told by Mark, Matthew, and Luke, all three of the synoptic gospel writers. And, uh, and they seem to be saying different things. The, the question becomes, if, if we're attempting to do so, how do we harmonize this? How do we bring unity to these statements? How do we possibly find a way to demonstrate that, that the gospel writers are not offering conflicting accounts? Well, I want to bring up a chart here, and it's already up there. So take a look at this chart, and it's going to be color-coded a little bit, and you can fill it in if you want on your outline. But I want you to see how it is that we can harmonize this passage. First, the Mark 6, 8 to 9 passage. You'll notice uh, that there are basically two main verbs and two nouns that we're going to be dealing with. The first verb marks says take, okay, take. Nothing except a staff. So, in other words, that's take a staff, right? Okay? So, take one staff. The second thing Mark says is to wear, in verse 9, sandals. To wear sandals. Okay? So, Mark's saying two positives here. He's suggesting that, that Jesus said, take a staff, wear some sandals. All right? Let's go to Matthew. Now, Matthew's account is totally contingent on one thing, the verb. Now that verb that you see in your New King James that is provide, the verb provide in Matthew 10, 9, is the Greek verb kataomai. And that verb actually means to acquire or to buy or to gain. The word provide is not the most accurate translation. And in fact, it's probably true that Others of you who don't have a New King James, maybe you've got an NIV or a New American Standard, you probably have the word acquire in your Bibles or the word buy. Um, This has nothing to do with different manuscripts. It's actually all the same Greek word, but it was just translated provide in the Old King James and they kept it in the New. The actual word here is acquire. It's buy, purchase. So what Matthew is actually saying here is, don't acquire or buy a staff, the verb is implied, okay? And on the other side, he's saying don't acquire or buy sandals. And again, the verb is implied. Both of those actually should be in parentheses because the verb begins at the beginning of verse 9. He's saying provide or, no, acquire or buy neither sandals nor staffs. Now, when you see the original meaning of this Greek verb, does the problem disappear? I think so. I think so. How? Well, Jesus says in Mark, take a staff and wear your sandals. Whereas in Matthew, He says, don't go out and buy a staff. Don't go out and purchase sandals. In other words, don't prepare additional materials for your journey. Take what you have. Take what you have. Clearly, there's a a, a vast difference between wearing sandals and buying sandals. Similarly, there's a difference between taking a staff and buying a staff. Now, let's move on to Luke. Luke says this in verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 3. Luke says, "...take nothing for the journey, neither staffs." He doesn't mention sandals, so that has an X through it. So he's, Luke, in effect, says, "...don't take a staff or staffs." Now... Focus in on uh, on the yellow part of staff there. Uh, next slide. This noun in Greek has uh, two different um, has two different uh, different manuscripts from ancient history have two different accounts. Of the uh, of the whether this noun is singular or whether this noun is plural. What what, what I mean by that is that you look in uh, some museums that house the ancient biblical manuscripts, the original some of the some, well not the original but the, the manuscripts from which we get our translations today. And one museum will have a biblical manuscript that suggests that it's a staff, and another museum will have a biblical manuscript that suggests it is staffs, plural. Okay. If we are attempting, if we are attempting to harmonize it completely, if we are attempting to make Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say the same thing, then we must conclude that option two is the accurate biblical manuscript. That is to say that Jesus is saying don't take staffs, in other words, more than one. Because if he's saying don't take a staff, which is one of the options, that would directly fly in the face of Mark chapter 6. So, if we adopt option two here, if we adopt the option that says, it's plural, don't take more than one staff, this is in effect what Mark and Luke are saying. Mark says this, take a staff. Luke, Luke, uh, Luke's account of Christ's words says this, don't take more than one staff. Okay, how many of you are thoroughly confused? All right, good, only one or two. Um, folks. this is an apparent discrepancy okay um, it 's an apparent discrepancy in Mark six with Matthew and Luke, but one that can be explained if needed. It can be explained if needed, and may I stress the words if needed um, because I fear that too often too often we lose ourselves in attempting to reconcile um, some rather uh, petty and small elements within the Word of God and yet miss out on the big picture of the Word of God. Um, If someone rejects the testimony of the Bible because of petty differences, such as whether there was one angel at the tomb or two angels at the tomb, or whether the disciples were to take a staff or not to take a staff, or to take two staffs or not to take two staffs, if a person is looking for those kinds of discrepancies in the Word of God, then may I suggest that that person is probably... More interested in remaining a skeptic than they are at seriously looking at the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, If you're looking for an excuse to remain a skeptic, you will probably find one. Uh, You will probably find your excuse if you're looking for one. Um, But I want to encourage us that the Bible is accurate. The Bible can be harmonized. And this is one explanation of how we can reconcile seemingly contradictory biblical texts. Off the rabbit trail, back to the real issue at hand. What's going on in this story? Back to our story. Jesus continues his instructions to the disciples. Verse 10. We're on verse 10 now. It says this, and he begged Excuse me, I'm in, the, I'm in chapter 5. Verse 10. And Jesus said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not uh, receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Some Some are going to receive them. They're going to receive their mission, and some are going to reject them. Jesus says, when you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. One commentator noted that uh, the instruction here was probably given so that the disciples would not seek um, a, a better offer of accommodations if their message was received. See, if they went into a village in Israel and they, they were well received by the people, it would be quite likely that... Uh, that the first home that they were in was probably a meager home and that they would get offers from others to come and stay at uh, at a better home with nicer linen sheets that wasn't very funny they weren't to take the better offer they were to they were to accept the first offer they were given and then it says what about those who reject them verse 11 he says and to those who do not receive them when you depart from there shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Uh, this was a, a symbolic gesture, uh, one used by Jewish rabbis who when they would leave an unclean Gentile territory, they would, uh, they would shake the dust off their feet as they entered back into Israel or into a Jewish village. Um, common practice it was used to symbolize disassociation, separation, Um, non-affiliation. They wanted to show symbolically that they were leaving their message where it it began. And the people would be responsible for rejecting it. Now we come to a very fascinating statement at the end of verse 11. Uh, Take zero in on verse 11 here. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus says, it will be more tolerable more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city, the city that that rejects their message. Uh, This, friends, is, is a statement of serious significance here. Jesus here says that the cities and the peoples who reject the testimony of the disciples, the message of the kingdom of God, will experience greater judgment than that of the cities and the peoples of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Genesis 13, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were exceedingly wicked and sinful. Um, it, was, it, it, it was a grotesque city. In Genesis 18... Uh, there is asked the question, what if there are ten men found? Would you spare the city, Lord, if ten righteous men were found in Sodom and Gomorrah? And the Lord says, sure, I'll spare it, knowing full well that there aren't ten righteous men in Sodom and Gomorrah. So Genesis 19 comes around and we see the city is judged. And they're judged because uh, the men in that city wanted to uh, engage in sexually perverse actions with the messengers of God who had come to Lot and to his family. And the men of Sodom and Gomorrah um, ask for the messengers, the angels of the Lord, uh, that they they can uh, engage in perverse actions with them. Uh, Just a terribly, terribly wicked city. Unbelievably sinful city. And the Lord, what does He do in Genesis nineteen twenty four? He rains down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from out of the heavens. You, know, you, you guys know this story. I don't need to remind you really how exceedingly wicked and sinful these cities were. Some of the most grotesque practices and sinners of all were found in these cities. And their judgment was severe. Fire and brimstone. They were consumed in an instant. And Jesus says in Mark 6.11, note carefully, He says very plainly, it will be more tolerable, more tolerable, for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for the city and the people who reject your message. The message of the kingdom of God. Now some of you uh, and some scholars might just chalk that statement up to hyperbole. Well, Jesus is using exaggeration here. He's just speaking... uh, with, uh, with an exaggerative tone. It's not to be taken too seriously. After all, God's judgment is all the same, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, we certainly see God's judgment is not always the same between uh, Christians. We certainly see in the Bible that there is a significant difference between Christians when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, let me just name off a few biblical passages which attest to this. Matthew sixteen twenty seven might want to jot that one down. It says, "For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward reward each one according to his works." Jesus also mentioned in the parable of the talents and the minas that different level a uh, different. Measures of honor and glory would be given to those who did well with what was entrusted to them. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 and in 2 Corinthians 5 mentions that Christians have the potential for reward and the potential to miss out on reward. Biblical crowns are mentioned by Paul, James, Peter, and John. James 3.1 says teachers will be judged more strictly. What, is, what does that mean? The churches of Revelation 2 and 3 are judged differently. The peoples within those churches are rewarded and held back from reward differently. And in one of the final statements that Jesus makes in the, in the, in the book of Revelation, He says, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. To give to each one according to his work? Folks, Christians receive rewards and degrees of responsibility in the kingdom of God based on their good works and based on their faithfulness. I ask the question, is it that much more difficult? Is it that much more difficult to suppose that there might be degrees of punishment? Degrees of condemnation in hell based on a person's works. Mark 6.11 sure seems to suggest so. Jesus seems to suggest that those who reject the disciples' message will experience a greater measure of judgment. That it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, either Jesus is exaggerating, and you've got you to accept that, and you've got to say, well, he's exaggerating. Okay, maybe he is. Maybe he's using hyperbole, which he does elsewhere. Pluck your eye out, you know, that's, that's a hyperbolic statement. Or maybe he's speaking plainly. And maybe he's saying, yes, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who have received a great measure of revelation of my truth, of my message. Could it be, could it be, that those who are given ample opportunity, multiple opportunities, those who are exposed greatly to the message of the Kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and yet reject it, time and time and time and time again, is it possible that those people could be held under a stricter judgment, a stricter degree of punishment than those who never heard or those who heard the message once or those who heard the message very few times. Little exposure. The idea, for friends, of degrees of punishment or condemnation is not a foreign one in the Bible. I know it's not one we talk about very often. I know that many of you are squeaming in your seat a little bit right now saying, I've never heard this. I've never heard this. Um, I don't doubt it. It's not talked about a lot. But I want to provide you with some scriptures that I want you to go home and you to study on your own. Among them are, uh, let's pull this next, there, there we go, scriptures attesting to degrees of punishment or condemnation. Psalm 28, Proverbs 24, Matthew 11, Romans 2, Colossians 3, Revelation 2, 18 and 20. I want you to take these home and do the work. Study the Scriptures. Consider what I'm putting forth. And say, I've never heard this before, but man, I've got to figure out if I believe this or not. Um, this is not something I'm going to pound over our heads. This is not something we're going to break fellowship over if we disagree on something like this. This is not uh, something that's, uh, that's ingrained into our church statement of faith that if someone doesn't accept this, then they can't be a member of Coast. Not at all. Not at all, friends. This is, this is, this is peripheral issues here on the scheme of, of, of doctrinal importance. However, However, don't reject something you've never heard or something you're reticent to accept just because you've never heard it or you're reticent to accept it. Go to the Word. Study it on your own. Think about Mark 6.11. Say, is Jesus exaggerating or is He speaking plainly? And come to a decision after thorough study, prayer, asking the Spirit for guidance. Um, I know it's not talked about a lot by by Western evangelicalism, but neither is the doctrine of rewards. Neither is the doctrine of eternal rewards. In fact, um, I was on... uh, I I had the privilege of taking Dr. Earl Rodmacher to the airport one day. Uh, There's Dr. Rodmacher. Rodmacher was, many of you know, a a Dallas man, a Multnomah seminary man. Um, uh, He's a a, a leading uh, free grace scholar, um, biblical exegete, excellent at at, uh, the, the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, excellent at the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. This man has written many books. We have some in the back even great scholar uh, currently he's uh, pre, uh, he's presiding over a brand new seminary grace seminary of the northwest up in portland and i had the privilege of taking him to the airport one day and taking him back after a conference when he was here at coast and i said dr Rademacher, this is about four, 4 years ago i said uh, i said tell me t- give me one word of wisdom give me one thing that you believe the church isn't doing Give me one thing that that isn't being talked about in the pulpit. One thing that would would spark change and would spark, uh, would just unleash God's spirit in the church. What is it? What are we missing? And he said three words to me. He looked at me as I was driving on I 5, and he turned over to me. He says, Neil, he said, Preach the Bema. Preach the Bema. The bema is the judgment seat of Christ. The bema is what is talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. When all Christians will sit before the judgment seat of Christ and receive reward or miss out on reward. They receive honor and responsibility and rulership or miss out on those things. That's the one thing he told me to do. Um, I think that's significant coming from a man who's lived that long, who's seen so many churches and, and studied the scripture so thoroughly, he says this is what's missing in churches today. Christians are not aware of the doctrine of eternal rewards. They think that they're all the same. How many times have you heard it said, well, well aren't we going to cast all our crowns before Jesus' feet? I'm sure you've heard that before. It's a, it's a, it's a nice little uh, evangelical slogan that people say when they want to make everybody the same. Aren't we all going to just take our crowns and cast them at the feet of Jesus? No. Revelation 4.10 is the only text that speaks of that. And it's not referring to you and me. It's referring to the 24 elders who sit around the throne of God, who worship Him day and night. They are the ones who take their crowns of gold and lay them before the throne. Never once is it mentioned that you and I do that. Never once is it mentioned that you and I give up our reward or our authority or our rulership with Christ. In fact, just the opposite seems to suggest that that there will be um, an eternal system of rewards in the kingdom of God. Um, why is it not talked about uh, i hes- I hesitate to say this, and at the same time i, I want to I want i think it 's important i think it 's important. Why is the doctrine of rewards not talked about? Uh, this is my opinion I want to separate this from everything else i 've said today. in my opinion, uh, the doctrine of rewards in Western evangelical churches is not talked about because of the widespread acceptance of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints says that all Christians will uniformly, unequivocally persevere in faith, love, holiness, and good works until the end. The doctrine of perseverance states that all Christians will uniformly and unequivocally persevere, remain steadfast in love, faith, holiness, and good works. And when Christians accept that doctrine, which I don't believe is true, when Christians accept that doctrine, that everyone's level of faithfulness, and everyone's good works, and everyone's holiness... will all remain the same, will all meet a certain standard, will all ap- approach a certain level before they can be declared a true Christian, then you've given yourself no reason for Christ to identify which Christians are worthy of special honor in the kingdom to come. When you make the conduct of Christians all the same, when you set the bar so high That those Christians who fail to persevere, who fail to remain holy, who fail occasionally in their faith, who fail in good works, aren't considered Christians anymore, and you raise that bar so high and say you're only a Christian if you're up here, then how in the world do you distinguish between who is one worthy of reward and who isn't? After all, isn't the bar already too high? Oddly enough, the Bible says just the opposite. It says just the opposite. The Bible seems to suggest time and time again, most notably Paul, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, that not all Christians will persevere in faithfulness. Not all Christians will persevere in holiness. Not all Christians will persevere in good works. Instead, Paul seems to suggest That there will be varying degrees of these things that mark Christians. And that's precisely why. Precisely why. Jesus, Peter, Paul, John, and James, and so many others speak about the doctrine of rewards. I believe there will be different experiences, rewards, and degrees of rulership in the kingdom. Because I believe that's what the Bible teaches We will not all be the same. Those who are Christians will enter the kingdom, but they will not all receive reward. Only those who have been faithful, who have persevered. Not all will persevere. And I also believe that there will be different degrees of punishment in hell. I think there is certainly less evidence of this in the Bible than of the doctrine of eternal rewards. However, there is still enough evidence to persuade me to believe this. I don't expect all of you to take my word for it. I don't. I expect you to look at Mark 6.11, to look at the Scriptures I've given, and to come to your own conclusion. Is Jesus speaking with an exaggerative tone or does He really mean what He says? And if He does, are you willing to accept it, even if it's an uncomfortable position to take? Verse 12, as we finish up. So they went out. And preached that people should repent, and they cast out many, many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The disciples go out two by two, preaching that people should repent. this is mark 's way of of summarizing making a, m- making a grand statement that the disciples went out through Israel preaching jesus 's message, namely the one mentioned in Mark one fifteen that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Christ. And on their journey, they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil, uh, those who were sick, and and they healed them. The disciples did precisely what Jesus had been doing. They were emulating Him. They were doing so with the power that God had bestowed upon them. They had become Jesus' apostles, messengers of the Messiah. And they were acting on His behalf. The mention of oil there in in verse uh, 13 is only one of two mentions of of being anointed with oil in the New Testament. It seems that uh, here the disciples anoint with oil for healing and, of course, the famous passage in James 5 where the anointing of oil is used in healing. Jesus never uses oil for healing. The significance is that in Jesus' case, um, there was not to be a separation between the one performing the healing and the one healed. Jesus was healing them. Whereas in the case of the disciples in Mark 6, or in the case of elders in James 5, they are to use a a measure of oil and lay it upon the person's head. In a sense, separating themselves from the power of God that is being accomplished in that healing. The oil is what demonstrates that, that that they don't have the power. The disciples didn't have the power within themselves, nor do the elders of a church. But that the oil goes to show that they are acting symbolically on behalf of God to heal. And we're going to see uh, that Jesus' popularity grows exponentially, friends. As a result of the disciples' mission, Jesus' popularity grows immensely and it comes with a few consequences that we will begin to look at next week. But for now, let's finish with some application for today. What can we learn today as we've gone through Mark 6, 7-13? to 13? Number one, Jesus made sure His disciples saw both positive and negative reactions to His ministry before He sent them out to minister on His behalf. That should remind us that results are not always guaranteed in ministry. They're not guaranteed. I want to again encourage those of you who are witnessing or attempting to help someone grow in their faith, the onus is not on you. You be faithful. You be a good example. And that's your job. That's your role. Number two, Jesus asked His disciples to trust Him for their provision during their missions endeavor. Do we trust Christ to provide for our physical needs? Are we trusting Him? Are you in need right now? Um, I know uh, the economy is getting squeezed. I know that um, I, I've spoken with many of you who are are starting to feel the pinch. And uh, it's time to trust the Lord. It's time to ask Him for help. It's time to depend on Him. Rely on Him for provision. Third, as Scripture attests to degrees rewards and degrees of honor in the kingdom, so also Jesus in Mark 6.11 sure seems to, to attest to degrees of punishment or condemnation to those who have received greater revelation about the kingdom. Study the Scriptures for yourself and identify whether or not you believe this to be a biblical doctrine. Uh, I, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fooling myself to think that this is something everyone wants to accept. I don't want to accept it. I don't want to accept that doctrine. However, um, I stick with the text. I stick with what the Word tells me. If the Word leads me in that direction, then I buy it. If the Word doesn't lead me in that direction, then I reject it. And I urge you, to, in your own studies, consider this. If you've never heard about it, don't reject it outright. Consider it. Think about uh, what the Scriptures are saying on this matter. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, the opportunity to study your word freely. To to open our Bibles freely. And to read your word with your Spirit's help. I thank you, Lord, um, even when it's difficult to read and understand your word. That your Spirit guides us, is prompting us, is urging us to consider your truth. I pray that you'd continue to give us clarity as we read your word. Help us to know and understand what it is you'd like us to to comprehend. Father, we thank you uh, for the way in which you provide for us, uh, for the way in which you provide for our needs. I pray now, Lord, as we've been asking uh, prayers before, that you would heal those who are sick, heal those who are afflicted in our church family and those in our extended family. Uh, Father, continue to provide for our needs, we pray. We are dependent upon you.